0: If you're enjoying history's greatest cities, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello. This call is being
1: translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede
0: hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva.
1: Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tu sabes lo que dije.
0: You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native
1: Samsung dialer. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
0: exploring Europe's most beautiful, intriguing, and historically significant cities. I'm Paul Bloomfield, travel writer and history fan, and in each episode of this series, I'll be virtually roaming the streets and sights of a great metropolis in the company of an expert historian guide. Together we'll delve into origin myths and uncover stories of shifting populations, conflicts and culture, wealth and weakness and we will visit key locations that reveal fascinating insights into the people and events that shape the modern city. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Thomas Lawman, lecturer in Central European History at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies. Thomas is the author of The Making of the Slovak People's Party, Religion, Nationalism and the Culture War in Early 20th Century Europe, published by Bloomsbury in 2019. With his wide-reaching knowledge of Budapest, and of its place in the turbulent history of Central Europe, Thomas is the ideal guide to lead us around the Twin City straddling the Danube. Together, we'll explore its ancient origins, its medieval development, its imperial pomp and art beauty, and of course, its more austere 20th century history, as well as the attractions of the modern city. We'll also meet some of the characters who influenced the evolution of Hungary and Budapest, and discover less known places to visit for insights into its heritage. Thomas, welcome. Good to be with you. Thank you. Okay, perhaps you could start by telling us a little about your connection to Budapest and briefly explain the dual nature of the city.
1: I first came to Budapest in 1991 when I was going to study for a gap year in southwest Hungary. And I was just fell in love with the city from the very first moment I was there. It's a spectacular geographical location, the mighty Danube rushing from north to south, splitting the city in two, the last hills from the Alps, petering out just on the western bank of the Danube. And of course, on the Pesh side, the flat as a pancake stretching out as far as the eye can see, with a sense of limitless opportunities. And the other thing, of course, is that the history of Budapest is all around you. In 1991, the old red stars, which had decorated prominent locations, were still covered over with tarpaulin, but you could still see their outlines. There was the scars of warfare. There were waves and waves of buildings built in all the different styles. And, of course, plaques and monuments everywhere most of which I had absolutely no idea what they were talking about and couldn't even pronounce them. But that curiosity has inspired my study of Hungarian history ever since. Well, that's a wonderfully evocative picture you have painted of
0: modern Budapest, or as it was three decades ago. Let's go back many centuries now. Who were the first peoples to inhabit the area around what's now Budapest?
1: Well, we've actually got some evidence of settlement from the Neanderthals going all the way back just outside Budapest in the Erd Valley where they dined on things like rhinoceroses and the evidence of lions is around as well. Very, very different landscape at that time. It's very difficult to rebuild the true accurate story of what's going on. They tended to be migratory peoples. We find that element of migration going all the way down Down through the millennia, people moving around the Carpathian Basin, which is a a geographic place arced by mountains with good climates inside the basin itself, an attractive place for people to settle and move around. But really, the first proper settlements come with the Bronze Age on a large island in the middle of the Danube chapel, uh, later a huge factory in the 20th century. And then, of course, in the 3rd century BC, we get to the Celts who are moving across Europe, picking modern Budapest as their primary settlement. The Danube flows through, providing fresh water. There's a whole set of caves underneath the Buddha hills, which provide a secure settlement and storage. There are hot springs bubbling up all over the Buddha side and the Pesh side, to a lesser extent, that provided warmth and um, opportunities even to provide some primitive power. And, of course, we've got a climate there with bright sunlight and sheltered hills that was excellent for producing wines. And they placed it on the tallest hill by the Danube, the so-called Gellert Hill, which became their base. So the Celts really were, we could say, the first proper inhabitants of Budapest settled and building a civilization there. And then we get the Romans coming in, and the Roman forces, Budapest, in fact, becomes the very part of the eastern border of the Roman Empire, essentially extended out to the Danube, and the Romans built a whole series of forts along the Danube the most famous one in this area is Aquincum, just north of central Budapest you can get there by the light railway in 15 minutes which has an excellent museum and the basically well preserved layout of the foundations of the old Roman fort but it's one of only many that were along the length of the Danube guarding the eastern border. Occasionally, the Romans tried to go beyond the Danube, but repeatedly ran into trouble and preferred to form a defensive border, which lasted for centuries. And the, the Buddha uh, Aquinson was given the status of a colonia, a proper Roman town, with everything that you'd expect there, marketplaces, temples, and all the rest. And then, of course, when the Roman Empire collapsed, we have like the cork coming off a bottle A huge wave explosion of a champagne bottle wave after wave of peoples coming through the Carpathian Basin breaking their way into into Western Europe because of course the Carpathian Basin is right on the great migratory path across the steppe into Europe And peoples came across like the Avars, who settled in the Carpathian Basin. And as one group moved further west, another group settled. Perhaps the most famous of the groups that came through were the Huns, who uh, played a critical role in smashing the Roman Empire. And indeed, some Hungarians claim that they are, in fact, descendants of the Huns. Certainly, that was the claim of the medieval chroniclers. The name Attila is still quite popular among the modern Hungarian population. So uh, don't be surprised if you go to Pritibest to meet a nice chap called Attila. Much nicer than the original Attila. But that claim of a link between Huns and Hungarians reinforced by chroniclers and the commonalities of the name has led to to a sense at least of a reminder that the Hungarians were only the latest of the groups that settled in the Carpathian Basin. So we have
0: these waves of settlement and conquest from the Neanderthals, really, through the Celts who first settled there and then the Romans. How in those, those sort of early centuries
1: of the medieval period did a nation arise, a nation of Hungary? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to call it a nation, actually. I mean, I, I think it's better to talk about the peoples who came into the Carpathian Basin and got the name Hungarians were actually a coalition. There were, of course, the Finno-Ugric speakers, originally from Siberia, speaking a language similar to Finnish and Estonian. And there's still uh, remnants of those people still living in Siberia. But they were joined by the Khazars from the Central Asia, who were uh, had some of them converted to Judaism, and the Onager Turks. And so it's the Turkic element that actually probably was the leadership of, of this multi-ethnic coalition. And they were the ones who led this coalition of tribes, famously known as the Seven Tribes, led by a man who chroniclers call Arpad, which is probably just a version of the word for Father Arpa, into the Carpathian Basin. It's important to note that we have very few sources from this period. But this is an area, the Carpathian Basin had really become quite chaotic at this point. And it was difficult to know, it's very hard to reconstruct exactly what was going on. The two major narratives about this is one, which is the traditional Hungarian nationalist narrative that the, these tribes, the Hungarians fought their way into the Carpathian Basin and conquered it at the very end of the 9th century in a series of epic battles. The other interpretation is that the Hungarians were actually fleeing from even more brutal forces further east, and essentially they retreated into the Carpathian Basin because they were unable to maintain their position on the steppe. Whatever the narrative is correct, and perhaps it was a combination of two, we really get to know the Hungarians when they start raiding even further westwards. And in fact, from the late 19th century until 955 AD, the Hungarians terrified the rest of Europe, uh, certainly continental Europe. There were even prayers that began, God save us from the Hungarians. They were a pagan people who waged war on the, the not only on the Avars and the Slavs who lived in the Carpathian Basin, but also uh, raided as far as, as, as northern Italy and over to Switzerland, southern France. It's not until 955 when German military superiority destroyed them. At the Battle of Lechfeld, when Otto I was lifted up on his shield by his knights to survey the strewn bodies of the Hungarian raiders. And that was the end, essentially, of the Hungarian penetration westwards. What came from there? was an attempt by missionaries to start pushing Christianity eastwards with the, we have the baptism of Prince Geyser in 973, and most critically of all, the moment when the pagan chief, Vike, in the year 1000, it said, accepted Christianity and was given a crown from the Pope that marked the moment where the Hungarians Formally converted to Christianity. And while it's a different crown that is in the Hungarian parliament now with its famous cross on the top, nevertheless, that idea of the crowning of the Vik who changes his name to Stephen and becomes a saint, that symbolic crown has become the symbol of Hungary ever since. So we have a, a Christian kingdom, if you like, that's formed
0: around that turn of the millennium. Going back to Budapest itself, what happened to that settlement in those early centuries of the the medieval Hungarian kings?
1: It's interesting because for reasons that were not entirely clear, Stephen and his successors chose to make their initial royal centre – in Sekeshvehevar, which is southwest of, of Budapest, about 40 miles southwest, a nice town to visit, but not particularly grand. And the archbishops of Hungary, as they gradually emerged, made their primary residence to the north of Budapest in the town of Estegol. We're not quite sure why Budapest was picked, but I think really, in those early centuries, we're talking about uh, traveling monarchs, Traveling archbishops and the very slow beginnings of a settled civilization. A lot of experts brought in from other parts of Europe, particularly Italians, to run the finances. The gradual Christianization of the country bitterly resisted in some parts by pagans who saw Christianity as a foreign invasion. And there's an interesting dynamic of this conflict, which is not only in Hungary, but across Central and Eastern Europe, where pagans and Christians fight it out to see which faith will triumph. And I think what we have is a sort of a in a way, a a struggling kingdom still integrating into European trade routes and absorbing European ideas. In fact, historians have generally argued that in this period it was defined by a lot of regional autonomy. The major change comes when the Mongols smashed their way into the kingdom in the 13th century. Really, Hungary is the end of that Extraordinary Mongol sweep westwards, and create absolute havoc. That is, your old world capital of Sekesh Fehervar is destroyed, as our innumerable villages. We lose almost ninety percent of the early settled locations. appear to disappear in this period, and so there has to be a reconstruction afterwards. And it's, that's the point when later Hungarian kings, having to rebuild the country, decide that. Buddha, the western half of Budapest, on those hills, protected to some extent by the river from forces coming eastwards, is a much safer place to defend. And they begin to build their royal castle there on the castle hill overlooking the Danube. That's when Budapest becomes the, we could say, really the Buddha itself, the capital of the country.
0: Right. So how did the city develop after that period, where presumably it was a little bit more stable after the Mongols had had been and gone?
1: Yeah, well, medieval states have their own dynamics. And one of the big dynamics, it's a litigious culture like medieval culture was all the way across, is the role of the courts courts are a means of resolving disputes between rival nobles who had in the standard feudal way carved up the country often local power warlords often not even hungarians were simply acknowledged to have a a control over a particular locality but these local nobles are constantly in disputes over fishing rights and land ownership and tolls and they come up to Budo, where the major royal courts are, to resolve disputes. That's a great source of tourist traffic. We also see diets evolving, that is the collections of nobles who could essentially work with the monarch and normally authorise tax rises. And we see charters being introduced, the equivalent of the Magna Carta, the so-called Golden Bull, it's a much weaker document, but it sort of gives the nobles a certain authority and makes them the beginnings of, we could say, some kind of consultative governance. So the role of the courts, the role of the diet, the growing wealth of the king and the growing wealth of the country with the uh, development of mining, for example, bringing in resources, salt mines, silver mines, etc., one striking factor is that migrants are being brought in almost from the beginning it's not just missionary priests it's warriors being brought in to defend the perimeters of the country and it's miners coming in with using modern technologies to help develop resources because the king gets a slice he's in favor migrants as as a way of economic growth and in fact it's often said that the story of the Pied Piper of Hamelin tells the story of German migrants coming to Hungary to Transylvania that sort of whole villages wholesale moving and many of them settled in Transylvania and in east of the country but you find increasing patterns of German settlement in Buda itself coming in Italians Germans assisting the growth of this royal town so what we see is a gradual reconstruction that's taking place. And, and I think the critical thing here is that there isn't much that survives architecturally from this period. Unlike in Britain, where we, we, in London, where we have major medieval sites, there's been such turmoil over the centuries that very little has survived. But if you go to the lovely Margaret Island, which is uh, an island in the Danube between Buda and Peshta, just literally literally slightly to the north of the city. There in on that island, which is a nice place to walk around, entirely pedestrianised, mostly a park, you'll find the ruins of an old monastery there, named after uh, St Margaret. That monastery with its ruins there is a reminder of the important role of the church in building the country, building the city and there's still a little place where one gets a sense of the medieval world uh, on that wonderful island peacefully on a hot day under the shaded trees in the middle of the danube
0: so we have this period from the 14th century, really, where Buddha was the, the centre of royal control and the courts and Pest on the eastern side, presumably growing as a mercantile centre. And as you said, we've got that, that sort of third leg of the church, which is also powerful here. How did that develop over the following centuries? How did Budapest benefit from those?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? That you're absolutely right. Pest is, is the market area, right? I mean, even the name goes back to burning. It's a, etymologically, Pest Patch, and it's the from the fires, the sort of that are being used, the sort of the the open air encampments and people gathering together in Pest for the great market fairs. Buddha, a more settled urban place, Pest, uh, slightly wilder, one suspects, and certainly uh, less built up. And the dynamic between Buddha and Pest is, is actually uh, quite sharp, right? There's also a third area, O Buddha, slightly to the north of Buddha, just means Old Buddha, which is developing a reputation for the cultivation of vineyards. Uh, quite a nice place for uh, for going for a glass of wine even now although heavily heavily turned uh, into uh, into lots of blocks of flats nowadays as well but there's a few old wine wine cellars around there but that was uh, also uh, uh, playing a role within the city these three distinct areas buddha Old buddha and pest but remember that this is a situation where the city is aware of being still a border zone a liminal place where peoples are still moving through, where there are profits to be made, but also risks. Central Europe in the... Fourteenth and fifteenth centuries is afflicted by that problem of dynasties dying out quite repeatedly and leading to political instability. It's also afflicted by um, the serious competition over territories because each time the dynasties die out, the legitimacy of the of the regime essentially put into question. The Hungarians at one point take advantage of this to seize Bohemia in the fifteenth century and briefly unite the, those two. To two realms. Similar situation happening with Poland. But we also have the Ottoman forces coming up from the south posing a risk. And it's a serious challenge that the Hungarians face in having to hold that battle back. And we see uh, heroes emerging like Janosz Hunyadi, who famously oversaw the great defence of Belgrade, which was such a celebratory victory that when the news came back, the church bells rang. It's a pretty striking sense in the 15th century of a kingdom on edge, at risk, and aware of its risk, but also of its potential because Hungary is also becoming a very rich country, relatively speaking, within Europe. The mines are producing a huge amount of wealth. There's gradual development of cities and prosperity emerging, partly driven through migration and engaging into the wider world. And under the great king Matthias Corvinus, a sort of classic example of a Renaissance monarch, Hungary begins to develop sort of The classic accoutrements of a civilised culture, not least a fabulous library, the so-called Corvinus Library, with its collections of top books. Universities begin to pop up, one in Obuda, where the wine was, nice location for university students, briefly survives 1395 to 1410, and in a sense, a wealth and power and a desire for renaissance glory that is there and the old medieval castle on uh, the royal palace on castle hill becomes known as one of the great palaces of medieval europe so there's a renaissance story there not much of it again has survived but it buries into that legacy and story of the past that hungary was already a great country thanks to the good king, Matthias, in the 15th century. So, as you mentioned, lots of things have been
0: lost in the past, not least because of conflict and battles. So the Ottomans, we know, were rising in the east. They came knocking on the door. What happened then when they reached Hungary and Budapest in force?
1: Well, this is one of those moments when one could say a genuine turning point in Hungarian history. 1526, the Battle of Mohach. Again, they know it's coming. And they assemble an army, which is enormous, the Hungarian army, that goes down to Mohac, down the Danube, almost to the borders now with uh, today's Croatia. And uh, they meet the, the advancing Ottoman force coming north. 60,000 Hungarians perhaps on the battlefield, something like that, but the Ottomans bring on 100,000. It's still a close-run battle, but the Hungarians are defeated. The country is left open to Ottoman advance, and with the young monarch killed, we have an absolute political vacuum. And this political vacuum then leads to essentially a civil war Between competing claimants to the Hungarian throne, ultimately the Habsburgs have the stronger claim, both uh, dynastically and militarily, and claim Hungary as now one of their expanding possessions. But in Transylvania, particularly in the East, there is Hungarian resistance that lasts all the way down to the 17th century. And actually Transylvania at that point becomes an autonomous Part of the Ottoman Empire, actually accepting Ottoman protection against the Habsburgs. And it becomes quite a lively mixed religions down there Calvinism, Catholicism, Lutheranism existing side by side. In Budapest, or today's Budapest, the Ottomans essentially take over and it becomes an increasingly Ottoman city. In the panic, the Hungarian, the Royal Archive, is put on a boat and sent off to Vienna to be saved. And unfortunately, the boat sank. So when you look out over the Danube, you can imagine the entire contents of the Royal Archive somewhere in the bottom of those waters. A bit was put on carts that survived, so we lost a huge amount of archival references. But interestingly, between 1526 and 1680s, Buddha becomes an Ottoman town and you can still find traces of this there's a Sufi shrine to the Gul Baba which is a short walk on the Buddha side from the castle hill not far and you see the development of Turkish baths and sort of the old idea of, of bathing there were lots of wonderful 19th century baths but Budapest has these 16th century baths almost perfectly preserved, where when you go in, the roofs have have little holes to allow the light to come through into the steam, creating an almost mystical experience. And so you can really go to Budapest and feel that sense of a proper Turkish bath in a 16th century bathing house, used continually ever since. But there's plenty of other things there, like the grand church on the top of Castle Hill, the Matthias Templon, was turned into a mosque for a period there were madrasas there were sufi preachers there was an ottoman middle class there was a significant educational system it's in the 1680s however when the habsburgs finally put their stamp on the the whole territory we take buddha by force it's actually a, sort of the habsburgs get together a sort of a multi-national crusader force that wreaks havoc and the ottoman community and the jewish community which had thrived in buddha since the medieval period and had been treated tolerantly by the ottomans was essentially wiped out and so we have the destruction caused by the ottoman takeover in the 1520s and then we have the destruction wreaked by the habsburg crusader reseizure seizure of the city in the 1680s and that leaves the city totally devastated. I mean, Brutus going to have to be completely reconstructed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi
0: teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said language is no longer a barrier thanks to live translate with galaxy ai on samsung galaxy s24 ultra learn more at samsung.com samsung account login required calls must be made using the native samsung dialer <sighs> spring is a time of renewal so why not refresh your home with a little help from blinds.com
1: And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mick crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
0: So how does that reconstruction take effect? We think of Budapest as being a really critical part of the Austro-Hungarian Habsburg Empire. So how did the Habsburgs and, and you know the, the people who lived in Budapest at that time redevelop the city?
1: Well, it's a bit of a schizophrenic situation all the way down to the 19th century because the surviving members of the Diet and the old noble families actually moved up to today's Bratislava, then known as Pojon or Pressburg, where the, the, a succession of Habsburg monarchs were crowned, including famously Maria Theresa. So in some sense, one could say the capital of Hungary had moved temporarily to Bratislava, a temporary all the way down to 1848. That being said, the geographic location of Buddha in the centre of the country meant it would never be forgotten. And it became an administrative centre of Habsburg rule, where the Palatine would often be placed. And with a serious administration running things out of a reconstructed on that castle hill they are an outpost of habsburg rule and see themselves as a force which is tasked with sort of reconstructing the country and stabilizing it but it's really not until 1848 that budapest or buddha and pest the two places become once again the political epicenter because it is the radicals in pest who start to demand changes that reflect the revolutionary turmoil taking place across uh, Europe. And they are tapping into a movement, which has begun in the late 18th century, of Hungarians who really wanted to... Assert that their country could not just be an outpost of Habsburg rule, but actually something of a of a serious state, and they often look to Britain as an inspiration. Critical figure in this was a count called István Széchenyi or Stephen Széchenyi, and he was a very wealthy Catholic noble from the west of the country. Not far from Austria, but who felt that he had a responsibility to restore Hungary's glories. And in particular, that meant restoring. Buddha and Pest and turning them into a modern metropolis and he was the one who organized the money to create a Hungarian Academy of Sciences which is still right there in the centre of Budapest lovely building they often don't let you in because it's quite an officious place but it's certainly stunning on the outside and he was the man who came up with the idea of inviting over a British architect Adam Clark to build the first bridge over the Danube is since the Romans. And that bridge is being constructed in 1848 when this revolutionary turmoil breaks out and Seychene and his allies see an opportunity in 1848 to turn Buda and Pest back into the vibrant centre of the city. At one point, a drunken poet, Shandor Petrfi, ran out onto the steps of a national museum and he read out inflammatory poem, uh, a national ode, which inspired also revolutionary resistance against the Habsburgs.
0: So that period is a period of unrest, to an extent, Hungarian nationalism. is also a period when the city was flourishing architecturally and culturally, wasn't it? If you visit Budapest today, you have these wonderful Art Nouveau or secessionist buildings, and that's reflected in the opera house and and the underground system and so
1: on, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely right. The 1848 revolution essentially was initially successful, but it ultimately went too far. Militarily clashed. Reforms took place served and was abolished, but clashed with Vienna and was put down. Though it left, it gave the Hungarians a tremendous reputation because the leader of that re- revolution, Lajos Koshut, became an international celebrity, as did many of his generals who had fought against the Habsburgs, like General Klapka. It, the revolution, even if it fails, it puts the name out there. And in 1867, the Habsburgs, who were dealing with a sullen defeated, revolutionary-minded people ultimately made a deal which gave the Hungarians home rule or autonomy within the Habsburg Empire, not only the the most important gesture of home rule. The Hungarians seized that opportunity. They moved the Diet back to Budapest and that again became the political centre now of a new parliament and they frantically used their political autonomy to turn budapest into the metropolis they wanted it to be a major european city and it's self consciously built to fit the mold of what a major city should be in the end of the 19th century so a major city should have a stunning parliament they build one on the banks of the danube almost as grand as westminster has to have its stunning opera house, has to have its grand avenues, of which the most impressive one is Andrushy Avenue, which runs out essentially from the Danube, just off from the Danube, running eastward across Pest, leading out to this hero square at the very end of it, where statues were erected to great Hungarian heroes, and then a magnificent park just beyond it, Hungary are very proud of saying that they also built under Andrashi Avenue, continental Europe's first subway, basically horse-drawn initially, but you could still ride it. It's just beneath the surface, easy to access with little, little sort of Tonka train-style kind of um, carriages, which you can just about fit into. And and the, the, there was a key moment that this reconstruction of Budapest was sort of based around, which was a decision to celebrate the 1,000th anniversary of the conquest of the Carpathian Basin and of the old Buddha by the Hungarians, back to those seven tribes. And they decided on the date 896. It was essentially fitted, a nice date to pick, because it fit with the construction timetable. And they built a whole series of places, including the reconstruction of a Transylvanian castle. They even built the recreation of an Ottoman bazaar, so that people could experience life as if it had been lived in the 16th and 17th centuries in Ottoman Buddha. This is when Pesh really becomes the industrial capital financial powerhouse of the country, with extraordinary rates of growth. And as you walk the streets of the city, you can still see much of this preserved, that is this late 19th century city, which is striving to live up to its promise of being the Paris of the East. So everything's going wonderfully
0: well in in Budapest. And then, of course, as we know, in 1914, there was another big turning point with the assassination of the Habsburg heir, Archduke Franz Ferdinand and the outbreak of the First World War. So how did that affect Budapest during and after the conflict?
1: Well, there'd always still been tensions there. I mean, in some sense, uh, this grand reconstruction of Budapest in the 19th century was was a mirage, because under the surface were all sorts of social tensions and continuing tensions with the Habsburgs, who maintained a citadella upon the top of Gellet Hill to kind of watch over things. The rise of a socialist movement that pointed to the, the unfair distribution of wealth. You have all sorts of minorities and half the population of hungary at this time didn't call themselves hungarian on censuses slovaks always proudly said budapest was built with blood and mortar our blood and water and the city was unified so buddha buddha and pest 1873 become a single urban settlement but in some sense there's still the divisions between the different areas difference between social classes the war just explodes this Because the war takes all of these tensions and ratchets them up. Economically, it destroyed the country. In fact, the war broke out right in the middle of the harvest of 1914, and the food supply never recovered. By 1918, the population was starving. Even the army, which got the first pick of things, is poorly supplied and envious of the Italians and who they're fighting against in the brutal hills of northern Italy. And, of course, the cost in population. I mean, over three and a half million Hungarians went to war. It's an extraordinarily high cost. And that cost is put on the regime. So that regime which had presided over the economic growth of the late 19th century, this mirage of greatness, as the historian Kondler has called it, Laszlo Kondler, mirage of greatness, that mirage explodes into a welter of recrimination and accusations, launched at everybody from failing Catholic Church to a political elite. The embodiment of that figure, of that regime, Tisa. But Tisa himself was shot dead in his villa at the end of October 1918, a sort of symbolic moment uh, when the old regime collapsed, and it basically swept away. The, the, the Habsburg monarch withdrew from politics and didn't have enough ink to sign his, his abdication. Parliament was essentially shut down, and a rather strange figure, uh, Mihai Karoly, the richest man in Hungary, briefly took over for a few months sort of as a red count, trying to carry out reforms. And then the Bolsheviks took over when Karoy proved unable to match the expectations for radical social change. And in that context as well, in the aftermath of the First World War, the entire country is ripped apart. And the Slovaks, the Romanians, the Serbs seize parts of the territory and unite with their ethnic kin across the borders so hungary is reduced in size by um, three quarters huge number of refugees pour into budapest uh, essentially put up in old railway carriages the city itself tarred by revolutionary violence and murder and ultimately when we look at 1919 it's a pretty unhappy place to be when eventually a counter-revolutionary government takes over it's a really a tragic moment But interestingly enough, 20s and 30s, Hungary begins to recover, restore its its economy, enjoy political stability. And actually, uh, in a sense, even we see uh, opportunities for new architecture to emerge in the 20s and 30s, a new social style. You can't keep Budapest down. So at that time,
0: we've gone from the Habsburg monarchy to a republic, presumably. How does that develop in terms of relationships at the start of the Second World War? And how does Hungary
1: and Budapest get involved there? In a sense, just as the late 19th century was a mirage of, of success, which had ethnic tensions underneath it and social tensions, into war Hungary which had gone through all of these political shocks from empire to republic to republic of councils and bolshevik dictatorship back to a counter-revolutionary regime which was headed by an admiral with the joke being called himself the regent of hungary because uh, the habsburg rulers were seen as too austrian to be allowed to continue and the joke was a kingdom without a king run by an admiral who didn't have a navy so it was a bit of an odd place and even if it was being reconstructed there was still a sense of an anger about what had taken place a real hostility to the bolsheviks and to the jewish community that was seen as associated with them somewhat unfairly but budapest had been this epicenter of revolutionary transformation and Budapest in the 19th century had gone through waves of emigration, particularly of Jewish community coming in as well. At one point in 1914, Jews made up almost 20% of the population of Budapest. Huge Jewish neighbourhood. And there was this sense of Budapest as, a, as a, what was called a sinful city because it had been the epicentre of these revolutionary changes which had, which had undermined the country. But there was also this anger about the broader loss of territory and loss of prestige. And Hungary believed that the only real way to get its territory back, and get its reputation and back was to align with Germany, which was also out for revenge, certainly from the 1930s onwards. And so Hungary and Germany formed a pretty firm alliance during the Second World War. And it's a painful time as well, because while Hungary was able to get back much of its territory, the costs of that, in terms of, of a ever-deepening relationship with Nazi Germany, were being underpinned all the time. It was, the, the situation was getting worse and worse. Hungary was losing its control. It had got into bed with Germany, and now it couldn't get out. In 1944, it was militarily occupied by German forces who had moved into the country to stop the Soviet army advancing westwards and the price of that was that in the spring of 1944 after the German troops arrived Hungary was expected to deport its entire Jewish community 600,000 people to their deaths in Auschwitz. There was a huge public pressure campaign and many of the Jews in Budapest actually survived the war because that ghetto, which was established in the 7th District, now the party district of Budapest, rather incongruously, that ghetto was never completely liquidated, though conditions were terrible within it. About half the Jewish population of Budapest survived. It was one major ghetto that survived the Second World War. So the Jewish community in Budapest endured, and there was still a vibrant Jewish community in Budapest, but the Jews in the rest of the country were, were deported to their deaths or the survivors fled to Israel and the United States. And, of course, the Soviet forces ultimately fought their way into the country and fought their way into Budapest, which is one of the great forgotten battles at the end of World War II, where the German and Hungarian forces took refuge up on the castle hill by the royal palace which the soviets shelled and if the royal palace itself burnt for three days huge destruction of the city when we're aware of the horrors of the war everything that survived which is in a remarkable amount seems like a
0: minor miracle so the Soviets, as you say, were advancing, and uh, as, as we know, obviously the Germans were defeated. How did Hungary and Budapest emerge from the Second World War? Famously, it came under communist control, but there was a subtle change there, wasn't there, over the, those decades?
1: Yes, from from the Nazi period onwards, what we see is that there was an attempt after the Second World War to have a democratic regime, but the Soviets were not in the mood to tolerate this, and the Communist Party of Hungary was greedy for power. Forty-eight to fifty-six. Hungary was thoroughly turned into a functioning communist state. And the leader at the time, Machash Rákosi, got the name Stalin's best student for the brutality of his measures. In 1956, in response to this brutality and a declining economy, the Hungarians rose up. In Budapest, students marched in a demonstration inspired by similar resistance in Poland... And the protests got out of control. Shooting started on the, on the afternoon of October the 23rd, 1956. And for 12 days, Hungarian revolutionaries took over the city, assisted by uh, the prime minister's decision to join forces with the revolutionaries, communist Imre Nagy. 12 days later, 3rd of November, Soviet forces fought their way back into Budapest via the tanks, blowing up a part of the National Archive and reasserting control. Almost 10,000 people were killed during the violence. Another 300,000 people fled, uh, many of them from Budapest to to America and some to Britain. So it's another moment where Budapest is turned into a war zone. If there's a, a benefit that came out of this, it was that the new Hungarian regime... Led by the long serving, forget Janos Kada, who essentially ran the party from 56 to 88, adopted a more moderate form of socialism and actually interested in things like cultivating tourism. So he built the whole series of rather ugly large hotels along the Pest side of the Danube. So there was a gradual relaxation, and certainly if the revolution had failed, The brutality of the old communist regime had been exposed to the wider world. A quarter of the Western European communist resigned party membership after the 1956 revolution, horrified at what communism meant as violence and repression. But it also turned Hungary into a more attractive place, so-called Gouyash communism, named after the national soup, where people had more to eat, more leisure time, and even tourists began to be welcomed back in. And, of course, I guess the most recent famous turning
0: point for hungary for budapest and and that whole region was the fall of the iron curtain at the end of the 80s what what was hungary's and budapest role in that and how did
1: how did they emerge well actually you could make a case that hungary played a critical role in bringing down communism after Kadar, the long-serving communist leader resigned he was replaced by a reform generation that was determined to actually move away even from reform communism to something approximating Western European socialism. And In 1989, they actually went to the Iron Curtain, the fences with Austria, and in what was called a pan-European picnic, symbolically cut open the borders. Plenty of people from other countries like Poland and, and East Germany to come down to Hungary and use it as an escape point. Uh, lots of people took uh, took their holidays in Hungary from other parts of the communist world and so um so it allowed a flood of people to escape to the west Hungary can really say that it played a critical role in the transformation but it also was a country that sort of embodied the best and worst of what took place afterwards in many ways it, the whole of this transformation was peaceful not a single person was killed as communism collapsed in 1989 New elections were held in 1990. The old Communist Party accepted its loss of power and reformers came in who transformed every aspect of society. But on the other hand, many Hungarians paid a steep economic price for that transformation. Pensioners saw their pensions reduced. Unemployment went through the roof. If you go down to the island of Chepel, easily reached by suburban railway, big island to the south you see this remnants of these huge factories which had been there, which were essentially closed down and only just beginning to be turned back into sort of artist's residence and film studios and things like this. So you you still see in Budapest the sort of traces of of both a, a transformation but also of an older world which is sort of clinging on and also traces of an older poverty as well. So it's a mixed city in that respect. Well,
0: that was a a very eloquent run through of a very long period of history, Thomas. You've mentioned a few sites that visitors might like to visit. I'd like now to ask you to share five places in Budapest that you would recommend visitors go to, each of which revealing something about the city's past, if you would.
1: The first one I have picked, and these all might seem fairly obvious, but I think there's a way of approaching them which is interesting. The first one is that Castle Hill, which I've talked about repeatedly. It's It's the place where the Royal Palace stands. It was very badly damaged in the Second World War. And when it was reconstructed, the historians made an interesting decision to not reconstruct it as it had been during the Second World War, before the fighting but to take away the 19th and early 20th century additions and bring it back to being an 18th century town, that old centre of Habsburg rule. And I recommend going up there in the evening after the crowds have left and to walk around and have the sense of being in an 18th century city. As you walk there and you've got the sunset coming in late evening in the shadows, you can imagine yourself with half an eye closed to be back in the 18th century. But it's well worth having a walk around and just getting a sense of a history that has been preserved and reconstructed and endured. So that's one. The second one I'd pick is actually the gelet Hill. It's been an important site going back. The Celts were living on it. The famous Christian missionary St. Gellert was apparently put in a barrel and thrown off the top of it, a reminder then of the challenges of turning Hungary and Budapest into a Christian place. But also at the top is this brutal citadella, as it's called, a sort of citadel of Habsburg power constructed after the failed 1848 revolution to keep an eye on the Hungarians below. And it is in standing on the top of the galat hill that not only do you get a fantastic panorama view excellent place to see the sunrise if you if you're up in time but you also get a reminder that this is a contested city where different empires the soviet empire the nazi german empire the habsburg empire the ottoman empire have claimed the city as their own indeed the christian empire and you stand on the gellert hill and think about those past empires perhaps while listening to this podcast on your on your headphones and uh, and hopefully you'll find something stimulating to think about there a reminder that the city is contested divided and in times quite brutally repressed a nice contrast to the to the sense of freedom and openness that exists down below. The third place I would choose is that Vida Hunyadi castle. It was built as a as a perfect replica of a castle in Transylvania in Vida Hunyad for the 1896 exhibition. So you go up the long and avenue on the Pest side, go through Heroes Square, Go into the park, and there, on your right, you'll see the castle. It's got an agricultural museum inside, which is which is not bad because it gives us it reminds us that Hungary was up until the 1950s a rural place. About half the population might be classed as peasants. But I'd also stress that this castle, which has a lake in front of it, which turns into a lovely place to ice skate in the winter, is a reminder of how history in Budapest is entwined with the history of the wider country. You know, when you go down through the streets of Budapest, you're meeting not only foreigners and tourists and and inhabitants, but people coming from all over Hungary and from areas beyond where still Hungarian communities live, and come up to Budapest to see it as a cultural powerhouse, as a cultural centre. And so this history of migration and movement is, I think, well summed up by the idea that it's not just people that can be moved, but castles as well. And if you can't actually pick the whole castle up, you just do a recreation of it. It's also a reminder that history is there to be manipulated and faked, and that includes architecture as well. Now, the fourth place I would pick is so-called Kirai Utsa, or King Street. It runs parallel to Andrashi on the Pech side, nowhere near as grand but, of course, an older street, developed in the 18th century as a major shopping street, street of Pest. And it was where the Jewish community gathered uh, and ran many of the shops and businesses. And along its side, that street formed one edge of the Second World War ghetto, into which the Jews of Budapest were confined in 1944. So as you walk along Kirai take a right turn anywhere you choose and head into the old ghetto. Now, as I say, many—it's quite a popular place for for bars uh, and restaurants, in fact. But again, to look at it from a sense of history, this seventh district, this old Jewish district on the borders of utza King Street, is is a place of ghosts and of painful memories, and that's part of Budapest's story. It's not just a beautiful, wonderful city to walk around and experience it's also a city with pain and trauma. And many of the memorials which are there and around the city commemorate loss as much as they commemorate success. And my final choice is the Western Railway Station. Now, I could have picked the Eastern Railway Station, which is where most people come to when they're arriving from Vienna uh, on the excellent Austrian railway network, where there are two statues on the front, one of watt and the other of stevenson right two great british uh, engineers who were commemorated because when the railways were constructed in in hungary they did it on the british model to capture the all the wonder that the railways had brought to this country but i'd go for the western railway station partly it's in a nicer more accessible part of town and partly because it's got the royal waiting room you can't always get access to it but it's there. It's on a side entrance. If you walk around, see if you can spot it. It's a reminder here of how railway stations weren't just an opening for trade and commerce and a movement of people. They were also there as avenues along which political power flowed. The railways was where the king came with his own private exit. It's a wonderful railway station. Everyone says it's built by Eiffel. It wasn't it was built by the Eiffel Company. But it's got some of that design. It's, it's a great station to see the trains going off to different parts of exotic and, and romantic names, perhaps. But it's there also where that royal waiting room, if you can get in, well done. But it's a place that reminds us where royal and political and economic power intersect. And that, in a nutshell, is Budapest wonderful that's a tantalizing selection of places
0: to visit finally Thomas can I ask you to share one piece of advice for anyone planning a visit to Budapest after listening to this
1: well, look, look. there's, there's loads of, of wonderful things in Budapest. So there's a wonderful cuisine. You've got to try the soups at every opportunity. But one thing that they have there is something called the spritzer, or as they call it, the frucht. And there is a frucht culture in Hungary, that, that particularly in the summer months. The basic idea is you take wine and you mix it with soda water in various quantities. And you can have a small frucht which has one deciliter, one-tenth of a litre of wine, either red or white, and one deciliter of soda. You can have a porter's fruch, which is three liters of wine and two deciliters of water. Famously, there's a crudy fruch, which was nine deciliters of wine and one of water. But my favourite, that I think is always a good fun thing, is a sport fruch which is for those people doing sports, perhaps at the halftime break, one liter of wine, four liters of soda. You wouldn't want them getting too drunk before they played the second half. Maybe... That was the secret of Hungarian footballing success in the 1950s. Maybe the England football team could try it. So go in, order a fruch in whatever variations you want. It's a cooling drink on a hot summer's day. A lot of Hungarians around you are going to be drinking it. It's great fun and an experience that every bar and restaurant in Hungary would be happy to provide you.
0: Wonderful. I've got a picture of Pruskas having his isotonic uh, fruch at half time. That was Thomas Lawman. His latest book, The Making of the Slovak People's Party, Religion, Nationalism and the Culture War in Early 20th Century Europe, published by Bloomsbury, is available now. Thanks, Thomas. And thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.